Hey, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for your feedback for our upcoming Season 3 retrospective episode. We're asking for submissions, and you can write in or record a short audio blurb telling us about your favorite moment in the third season of Northern Exposure. We'll give you a shout-out or play a recording on air when we discuss Season 3 as a whole. Send your submissions to the email address northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to the show and writing in. And now, back to your regular broadcast. I've been practicing medicine since I was 12, almost 30 years. My training has been very orthodox, uh, very traditional. But you know, lately I've begun to think that my approach has been too narrow, that I should open myself up to alternative forms, less holistic. Huh. Maybe it's biologic, but at my age, you've begun to uh, question things, reevaluate your life. That was the voice of Leonard Quinnahawk. It's Marilyn's cousin, and he is... Uh, I guess you would call him a shaman, sort of a witch doctor, I guess is another word. But he is um, talking about essentially shadowing Joel and sort of stepping out of his comfort zone, trying new experiences, sort of reevaluating his practice. Yeah, he would identify himself as a healer, like not a doctor, but Mm. a healer. And you're right. He's trying to get out of his ordinary practice, trying to see what Joel was up to and how quote-unquote, conventional medicine works. Yeah, I got to say, I really like Leonard's character. Um, We should say he's portrayed by the actor Graham Greene. He's just got this very plain, sort of -of matter-of-fact, very calm affect. And, uh, you know, reminiscent of sort of the Uncle Anku wisdom from, um, what is that, episode two, Brains, Know-How, and Native Intelligence, who is also uh, what he calls, or what Ed calls, a witch doctor. So, you know, similar type characters. Uh, Leonard's obviously a lot younger, but I just really like his characterization. Yeah, I agree. I appreciate Northern Exposure trying to, as always, go out of the ordinary boundaries, trying to look beyond what would be the status quo right here. I, I just think it's actually very interesting how that dynamic evolved into what we have in 2020. And what we would call like alternative medicine and our viewpoints on that yeah. and how like how much of a divide that was compared to what it was in like the 1990s where like that was actually like a new... The new age medicine as, yeah. as Joel calls it. Yeah. And like it was just starting to come up. So it wasn't as divisive to then. Yeah. So the themes that this episode is trying to parlay, I, I appreciate. But if we saw it in 2020 eyes, I would be much more critical. Uh, of uh, Leonard. Yeah. And Joel yeah, exactly. Joel sort of doesn't let off, you know, in this episode a lot. He's pretty standoffish to Leonard. He's um okay, hold up. Joel, okay, what are we talking about? <laughs> this is <laughs> this is uh the television series Northern Exposure, the 1990 series. Today, 30 years old, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we're really getting up there. And so this podcast is called the Northern Overexposure Podcast. We overanalyze the show, and every episode we try to introduce someone new to the show. Since it's such an old show, it's kind of hard to get your hands on. Uh, We like to see how it stands up today in 2020, and I don't know, just sort of get the word out about the show that uh, that we love. Well, I mean, I've seen it quite a few times, Charles. This is your first time 
watching every episode. Yeah, this is my first time watching every single episode. So I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. You've already seen it. You know what's going to happen. You know all the twists and turns and uh, little alleys that we have to go through on this television series. And for this episode, I would have to say that I like it. Yeah, I think I mentioned in the last episode, this is one that I remember very strongly. I think it's probably my favorite episode we've seen this season. Really? It's a lot like uh, I said in the first season how Brains Know How and Native Intelligence was, I think, I think I ranked that my favorite episode in the first season. It just reminds me a lot of that. And it points at something that I often define Northern Exposure as, even though it's not always present in every episode. But I really love how they approach medicine not like, you know, ER, not like textbook medicine, but more about the doctor-patient relationship. And that's what's really focused on, I think, in the in the Leonard Joel storyline. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's the theme they're trying to hammer home is that your patients aren't just like a textbook for you to read and then diagnose. Like there's something deeper within them for you to look into to be like, oh, this is the exact problem. And like in order to quote-unquote, heal somebody, you have to establish a deeper, meaningful connection within them. Yeah, that's sort of Leonard school, and it seems to make a lot of sense. I guess we'll get into it, but starting off here, this is the 19th episode in season three. We're approaching the end of the season, and it's called Wake Up Call, and um, this episode is written by Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. They're recurring players on Northern Exposure. I believe they're producers in some right. Uh, they've written a lot of the episodes and they will write a lot more of the episodes. I believe they're, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they're married, but I know that they are partnered up a lot for sure. And the episode was directed by Nick Mark. I think this is his first directing in the series, though he will continue to direct more. I thought it was a, we'll get into it, but I think he, I think there's some really great direction in this episode. Yeah, I agree. I really like the direction of this episode. And I got to say, there's one scene in particular that I really like the way they directed it. It's the one where Maggie's going across the river to go meet Arthur, and it's a wide shot. And like they, from my recollection, they don't do that a lot in Northern Exposure. So you can see her going across on the river and the stones that she's stepping on. And I really enjoyed that. But the reason why, I have no idea. There's some really great wide shots in this episode that I'm going to bring up. I think uh, I used to point it out a lot in the first season because that's something I really like is those really wide, empty frames. The fact that oftentimes in this show, when when it really hits and really works well, they'll oftentimes focus at the quiet moments after the scene has resolved. So like before cutting to the next scene, they just hold on something, some sort of action, some sort of expression that it's not a verbal but it just really lets that concept of the scene sort of marinate before you cut away. Gives you a a moment Mm. of silence to reflect on it. And uh, yeah, I should say though, that this is not actually Nick Mark's first, you know, directing efforts for Northern Exposure. He's been here for a while, actually. He directed All His Vanity in season two. And then in season three here, he directed the premiere, Bumpy Road to Love. He directed Animals Are Us. And he's back. So he's been working for a while. Oh, okay. (laughs) I like the title of the episode, Wake Up Call. I think it's very apt on the themes that we're trying to go through. So number one, it's springtime, which is cool because it's following the chronology of our season. So we spent a lot of time in winter and now we're going towards spring where all the flowers are awakening and animals are coming out of hibernation. Uh, And also there's lots of themes of rebirth in this episode. Again, 
going up with a wake-up call. Shelly, Maurice, Marilyn, possibly Ed. We'll get into that more. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I didn't think about... I'm trying to think of what Ed's... Uh, it's just one little thing. It's just like one thing. <laughs> I can't wait to hear. Uh, but yeah, I think in one of our previous podcast episodes, I was very confused about the chronology of time because I thought we had already reached spring. And I think it's very likely that where they were shooting, I guess, closer to Seattle area, it probably... Warm weather probably started a lot sooner than you would expect for Alaska. Um, but no, this is the episode in the chronology of the show storyline, sort of timeline, in, in Sicily, Alaska, we've entered spring. I think that in the Midwest, I think they have two springs. Really? Like I have been told that they have like the first spring, which everything is lovely, and you think winter is over, and then it sidelines you because then the w- rest of the winter comes oh, back no. in like April, and you're like, it's still freezing cold. And then like second spring comes back. I feel like where we live, Charles, in the south, we get it's pretty hot, you know, usually all year round. Sometimes, I mean, we obviously we do get winter, but sometimes it's very brief. Sometimes it comes very late. You really, if you can blink and miss it, you know. I would say that we are summer up until. New Year's and then it, it goes used to, yeah. to like winter. Yeah, I used to remember it starting getting cold around like Halloween, but sometimes that doesn't happen and it takes until, yeah, until like New Year's. That's when it gets really cold. Yeah, absolutely. It's very common for us to wear shorts during Christmas. Like that is like, it's not even out of the uh, ordinary. Yeah. Well, okay. So in Sicily, we see the effects of spring uh, right off the bat. Chris has seasonal allergies. It's very sniffly. Yeah, he says his seasonal allergies hail the vernal equinox. So that's his fancy <laughs> verbose way of saying he can predict the spring uh, by his allergic reaction. And a um, couple quick things I noticed in this first scene. Chris has short hair, I mean, as he has had in the in the past few episodes. But I wanted to go back and kind of see when that sort of transition happened. And it's kind of confusing because if you go back to the last episode, my mother, my sister, yes, he has short hair, lost and found he has short hair. But then in Three Amigos, I think that was episode uh, 16, he's got very, very long hair. That's like sort of the Call of the Wild episode. So he's not in it a lot, but he's like on the radio reading Call of the Wild. Mm. And then the episode before that, he has short hair though. It's Democracy in America, I think is when he cuts his hair when he goes to the voting booth. Yeah, the, I yeah, thought that was the, the episode place. that it was established that he got short hair because he, he wanted to make himself nice and trimmed at a voting place. Exactly, like the return of the prodigal voter is what uh, Ruth Ann says. But yeah, so there's a bit of a weird dip in the chronology um, or sort of a break because he goes from clean cut to very overgrown hair and, and three amigos and then back to clean cut. Anyway. So they must have filmed it in different <laughs> orders then. They must have, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess okay. I guess his part in Three Amigos was um, pretty minor, so he could shoot that, you know, before they cut his hair. I don't know. He could shoot that before they started shooting. The, honestly, I don't know why why that happens, but <laughs> well, yeah. So it seems like Chris is in need of Zyrtec. He's got that <laughs> spring allergy, and I feel for him, man. I have spring allergies. I also have fall allergies and summer allergies. I think I have like of three of the four seasons. I have. allergies like anytime i sneeze i just attribute it to the the the, the weather yeah no i'm i'm very plagued by allergies uh, just the same it's pretty bad i think we've noticed on the podcast i get pretty snuffly and (laughs) my voice just sounds completely different so chris throughout this episode is kind of acting like the i don't know what to call it like the greek chorus yeah like the voice behind everything he's just narrating on the radio and i gotta say that 
I enjoy him doing that, but I also like him being central to the story. So I hope that we get off this trend right now of him just being on the radio and commenting on how things are happening in the town of Sicily. I want him to get involved in there. Yeah, that's true. I really do like Chris as sort of the, I like what you said, the Greek chorus. That's a very good description. And I kind of like grown comfortable with uh, him serving that role in the episode, but you're right. He hasn't really played a very plot heavy role, you know, in um, burning down the house is a great episode where it's kind of all about him building that trebuchet, you know, or there's a lot of that. Um, So he's not just a voice on the radio, but um, in this episode for better or for worse, yeah, he's just kind of broadcasting the general feelings, emotions, thoughts, themes of the episode, sort of Easter vibes, you know, rebirth spring. There's little baby chicks that he's uh, been, Incubating, I guess, is what it's called. Yeah, there's like a whole like 24 cartons of that, <laughs> like 24 eggs. Like it's just sprayed out over there. And oh man, I wish I had looked this up. Is it even possible to raise chicks like that just to have them out and about? Yeah, I think it's possible. And with a quick internet search, I think you can even do it without an incubator, like without a heat lamp source. Um, you might just have to use other methods, maybe covering them. I'm not an expert here, but I think it's possible. Ah, okay. Well, just getting back to sort of the um, the Chris angle of this episode. Well, just to get back to the sort of Chris angle in this episode, we're constantly rejoining him in the studio and he's expounding on ideas of uh, death and rebirth. You know, he mentions uh, somewhere that ancient civilizations uh, used to respect uh, the dead, and they also respected bears too, which we'll get into because there's a, there's a lot of bears in this episode. I think in the beginning he says, uh, "Watch out because there's some bears on the prowl that are going through people's garbage." That's a bit of exposition that sets up another storyline. But here with Chris, he mainly focuses on what he calls the Big Bang of the human psyche, the recognition of death. And I think he's kind of touched on this in a past episode. Maybe it was. Um, Lost and Found, or what's the episode where they're breaking down that building? Yeah, it was Lost and Found. He was holding the brick up, kind of like a... Like poor Yorick or something? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, he just kept staring at the brick Uh right there. But, yeah, he was philosophizing about the destruction of a building and how it would lead into the future, how the building necessarily didn't have to physically be there. Like the spirit of it still resided. And a lot of that similar theme is found in this episode as well. And particularly in Chris's expounding, like you were saying, he is just in the K-Bear radio booth, just talking about the entire cycle of it all. Yeah. The idea, you know, birth, death, rebirth, and the idea that death is not the end. Do you think that his allergies are actually part of a cycle? Yeah, I guess they definitely are because he says they sort of begin right at the beginning of spring and uh, just to complete the cycle, they sort of uh, dissipate, you know. It just happens for maybe a week or something or a couple days. Yeah, and then right afterwards, he's able to resume back to normal course, but... That's pretty cool. Yeah, he needed to like, quote unquote, suffer? (laughs) Suffer? Is it? I'm trying to think of like how that's applicable. You know, currently we're going through... Um, the Jewish holiday of Passover. And a big part of that is like, you know, you eat the bread of affliction. You have to sort of like, you know, you can't have leavened bread. You have to eat matzah. So there's a lot of that sort of suffering in in this uh, springtime holiday. Wait, that's really good. I didn't think about that. Yeah, so there's a lot of fasting during this time. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of giving up of something for Lent. 
yeah, I guess I can correlate into Chris having to, quote unquote, give up his health for a little bit of time before he can recover back and resume with spring. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, it's got its own role in the themes of the episode, but also in the themes of our calendar, you know, outside of Sicily, just in the world. You know, we have a lot of those, like you mentioned, those holidays that require fasting um, around this period of time. And then another scene with Chris that I really like, I'm sure we can kind of get really into this idea because it sort of ties in with, well, it ties in with a lot of stuff, but it kind of reminds me of uh, maybe something that fits with uh, Maurice's plot line in this episode. Sort of one of the last things Chris appears to do in this episode is he's talking about his buddy Chuck, who he had a friend in prison who was stabbed in the lung and was like in the infirmary for a long time. When he got out of the infirmary, he tells Chris, you should live every day like it might be your last. And I really like how Chris spins this. He says, you know, that's a tired old chestnut, but try roasting it like this. It ought to be spring every day. Every day we ought to wake up brand new. And I feel like that's what is really bothering Maurice a lot throughout the entire episode. He wants to try something new. Like he doesn't like the same old coffee from the brick. He doesn't like the same old aftershave that he uses. Uh, so he's, he's trying to reinvent himself constantly. And uh, I think Chris's sentiment here is uh, uh, just sort of empowering, you know, saying that that's something we can do every day when we wake up is to try, you know, to live every day like it may be your last, but also just try to wake up brand new. There is a great 30 Rock joke where Tracy Jordan says, Liz Lemon, you need to live every week like it's Shark Week. <laughs> I feel like that's very applicable to here. Yeah, it's saying a lot of the same things, but <laughs> but <laughs> I love in it. a much more goofier manner. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very interesting that it's Maurice is the one that is sounding the bells on wanting to change. Like he doesn't want to drink the same old coffee like you were saying, and he wants to reinvent himself. Do you think that's actually something that's pertaining to Maurice's character, like a man that always wants to push the boundaries? Because he is the man that went the space. He pushed the boundaries of literal land and uh, gravity. So he's always, you know, going to the new thing. So therefore he's going to his new self. Yeah, that's interesting because I wouldn't uh, expect Maurice to be this character, to call for change. Because if you remember, like in Democracy in America, he's the one who is afraid of uh, a governmental change. But um, I think you're right, though. I think there's also a part of Maurice that fits in with this uh, sort of sentiment that he's trying to really strive for that that sort of change. If you want to talk about it real fast, there, there's that scene when he's explaining boot camp to Ruth Ann. So that's when he's in Ruth Ann's store and he's trying to find a new uh, aftershave. You know, apparently he used to wear Old Spice, but he says everything's the same. There's no surprises. Uh, he relates to her his experience in South Carolina at um, U.S. Marine Corps, Paris Island, and uh, his experiences in boot camp there. Uh, he loved it, like this the whole sort of tabula rasa idea, like the idea that you were tore down and then you were built back up again by the Corps. And he says everybody should do that once in a while, you know, which is very similar to what uh, Chris is talking about at the end of the episode. Uh, I like what he says. He says, you know, everybody should do that once in a while. Trouble is I'm too old for boot camp. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard of that too. Whenever you go to boot camp, they would actually do everything they could to strip you of your individuality because in a platoon, 
presumably everyone needed to be on the same page, even if it was like a bad order, like even if it was something that wasn't like a hundred percent correct, everyone needed to fully commit to it, which in the military is a very good idea. Like you want that. Um, so they would purposefully would destroy everything about you. And then from there on, once everyone is on the same page, once everyone's been stripped of their roots, you can start to grow again. So it's a very apt analogy on what's happening throughout this entire episode as well. Yeah, we could say this is like one in a series of Maurice's midlife crises. You know, he he wants to uh, start fresh, you know. So with spring and all of its awakenings of the flowers and people, we also have the animals being reawakened, including the bears. Yeah. And Chris mentions it too. Yeah. He says that like, be careful of the bears rummaging through your garbage. They're going to go pick everything through it. And it's actually very true. I don't know if you know this, but bears have really good eyesight and hearing and smell. Their sense of smell mm-hmm. is seven times greater than a bloodhound's. Wow. Yeah. And you can't just... You can't just hunt the bears. Uh, I read that when communities start experiencing conflicts with bears, a lot of wildlife agencies will try to do a hunt or raise the quota of an existing hunt for bears. But a lot of studies show that hunting the bear does nothing to resolve human-bear conflicts, Like uh, even if you're just trying to find them. Because you're killing the bears that are out in the woods, not the ones that are going into human civilization. Right. So you're killing the wrong bears. But the bears are really good at getting through trash. Like, it is a real (laughs) problem up in the north from what I am able to read on them. But, yeah, that's what's happening over here. And Maggie's getting uh, a bear that is rummaging through her garbage on the first night. Yeah, I've heard that um, when you're camping, you're supposed to, like, take your trash bag and hang it up really high from a tree so that bears can't get to it. Uh, You know, I don't know how true that is, but... Yeah, yeah. You definitely have to clean up your site whenever you go to sleep because bears definitely will come over there. Do you know that black bear attacks and brown bear attacks are different? Okay, how do they differ? So apparently, black bear attacks are much more rare. But if a black bear does confront you, you need to hold your ground because they're probably more scared of you than you are of them. Mm. So you need to hold it, your ground, and like kind of like... I, I guess like conflate yourself, make, make yourself, yourself look larger. big. Yeah. Yeah. And the black bear will run away. That's what I have been told. <laughs> but apparently on brown bears, I think you're just screwed. Yeah. You're supposed to just play dead, right? Isn't there one where you're supposed to play dead, but there's really nothing you can do. Yeah. I believe it's the brown bear that will just, it'll, it'll get you, man. Like it doesn't matter. I would assume um, Jesse the bear in, in Sicily, you know, in, in this world, in this universe, I would assume Jesse the bear is probably a brown bear. Oh, I forgot about Jesse the bear. Yeah. Totally forgot about him. But yeah, so Maggie has a bear infestation or like a bear that's going through her garbage and all that. Yeah. And then in the next scene, we see that she's in her truck broken down. Like she's stuck in the mud, which is, I guess, kind of metaphorical for her entire situation. She is stuck in the mud of her relationships. Yeah, that's a very uh, visual representation of what's going on with Maggie. And I guess we should quickly mention, you know, Maggie is stuck in the mud in her sort of love life. Her introduction in this episode is she receives a postcard from like an old high school friend or something. The postcard details that her friend is about to have a baby. And um, she she says something like, I didn't even know she was married. So you could quickly see, I, I like what Maggie says. She says, um, well, she wishes that she had a partner, but she believes that she, uh, quote, missed the first round. 
Like everyone got married early and she missed it. So she's Isn't got a, Maggie 27. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I mean, Oh, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Joel is, um, isn't he 28 or 29? He's a little bit older. I, I think he's 28. Yeah. Anyway, they're, they're in their mid to late twenties. Uh, but yeah, Maggie is figuratively and literally stuck in the mud in this scene. Yes. Though I have to say, at, at least for us, maybe it's because we grew up in the South. It is rare to be surprised at people being pregnant at the age of 27 because <laughs> people get pregnant at the age of 18 here. Like that's, <laughs> we start reevaluating our lives at like 18. We're like, oh man, she's getting a child. Oh man, I just got into college. I need to, I need to pick it up. I need to get more into adult stuff. I guess you would say it's like the Bible belt sort of, I don't know if we actually fall in the Bible belt or not, but yeah, it's that sort of uh way of life, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just surprised that she is freaked out that her peers are having children at a, I mean, it's a reasonable age, like 27. But I guess she's not being freaked out about that. She's just being freaked out of the, of the action of it, of how like they're, they're doing something, I, I guess. It's not because of like the fact they're having children. Yeah, I think she just feels like, um, you know, hearing that news, she sort of reevaluates her own life. And that's something that she maybe wasn't thinking of consciously, but it is something that she realizes that she really, you know, she wishes she had a partner. Yeah. I like how whenever you hear news, like especially life altering news of other people, you spend like maybe 0.5 of a second thinking about that and then the rest of your time is thinking about your own life. Yeah. I think we, we kind of mentioned this in the episode um, when Hollings like, dad or uncle, sorry, one of his family members passed away and, you know, he goes through all of his belongings and stuff and then he has his own midlife crisis because what is he like 60, but he's going to live till 120. That's like his midlife crisis. Oh yeah. <laughs> but he, he goes through a very similar sort of reevaluation though. Thankfully in this episode, Maggie isn't like drinking herself into a drunken stupor with what is it like potato vodka or whatever. <laughs> That was yeah. a fun episode, though. Yeah, sorry, go that ahead. Was, no, 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 no. So Maggie is stuck in the mud, and she needs to get out of it. And out comes a large gentleman. Not large as in, like, he is, like, wide, but large as in, like, he, just his frame. Like, everything about him. Yeah, tall, attractive, blonde, sort of Scandinavian type. Uh, so his, his character name, as we find out, is Arthur. We kind of mentioned that earlier. But uh, he's played by the actor Andreas Wisniewski which uh, if you check out his credits, you might recognize him. He's one of the terrorists in the movie Die Hard. He's the one with the oh, glasses. What? Yeah. The, the one who, you know, whenever they open up the elevator shaft and he's dead and his shirt says, now I have a machine gun, ho, 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 or whatever. Oh, no <laughs> that way. <laughs> so unfortunately, he's not in Die Hard 2. He didn't make it that far, but he's here in Sicily. Nice. You know that Arthur is actually kind of a translation to mean son of the bear slash warrior king in Welsh and Celtic. Very apt naming for this character. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that the name Arthur had any association with bears. No, yeah. Though isn't there like, hang on, do you remember that children's animated show, Arthur? Wasn't? Yeah, wasn't he's a bear? No, he's an aardvark. Oh, but he kind of looks, okay, got he it. sort of looks like a little teddy bear maybe. Cause he's like a smaller version of a bear with like ears. <laughs> he does have a, you know, it's not very pointy, but he has a long face, which I think is supposed to represent the long sort of uh, face of an aardvark. 
Oh, got it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so we see him. He comes out of the woods out of nowhere, and then <laughs> he helps push the truck out. Though when I first watched the scene, and he said, get in the truck, we're like, you know, we got to get you out of there. I thought he was going to push the truck back to town. Like, I thought, I, I didn't realize you were stuck in the mud. I yeah, thought that, yeah. like, her, she ran out of gas or something, or, like, her truck to stop working. I was like, he's going to push her back to town, like, <laughs> just by himself. That would have been so cool, but I think it would have given him away much too early. By the way, okay, so we're dancing around it, but it's later revealed that Arthur is a bear, I guess, right? I mean, like, we kind of can infer that. It's not really explicitly stated, but uh, I think he's a bear. Yeah, he's a werebear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I true. actually caught that. I caught that so fast. It's right after the scene where he pushes the truck out and Maggie's looking at her rear view window to yeah. look at him. Uh-huh. For some reason in my head, I caught it. I was like, I think that guy's a bear. <laughs> like, I think he's actually like, I think Northern Exposure is going to go in that way and call him a bear. You're familiar enough with the show. You can call the shots now. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it does become, if you haven't figured it out uh, at that point, I think later... Uh, Maggie hears someone snooping around her trash again and she thinks it's the bear again. So she like gets her rifle ready, goes outside and uh, it's Arthur. They're waiting for her. So at that point, you're like, okay, he's probably the bear, right? Because we've used that sort of auditory signal of the trash can lid falling off to symbolize bear. And this time we get the visual of Arthur, which is not what we would expect, but kind of plays into that explanation i guess that he's a bear (laughs) yeah and he does all manners of bear related activities like he drinks mead which is (laughs) honey uh, yeah honey wine honey he lives in a cave i I don't know how she didn't question that like you live in a cave that's your place of domain that's what i wanted to say real fast is like at what point do you think maggie realizes it because there's a moment right before she goes to his cave she finds him fishing in the river and he catches a fish with his bare hands. And I really like um, Janine Turner's acting. Like she shows genuine uh, surprise. She's like, how did you do that? That's incredible. You caught the fish with your hands. And Arthur goes on to explain, uh, you know, his whole family fishes. It's just like a lot of hints that he probably is a bear and lives with other bears. But In that scene, Maggie seems to be a little cautious maybe when he's describing his family to her, but I think it's maybe because she's worried that he might already be married. But I was wondering, do you think she knows he's a bear in that scene? Do you think she knows he's a bear early or do you think she, do you think she thinks he's uh, just like the love of her life until, until he doesn't come back? I think she is blinded by puppy love or I guess. Yeah cub love I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to call it in this particular situation <laughs> yeah. but i think that she's willing to let a lot of things slide yeah in, in order to get to know this person which uh, in her defense i can kind of understand because when you are falling for someone like whatever they do initially it's, it's always really quirky cool and adorable yeah like, yeah, like yeah. the whole cave like, living in a cave that's so awesome right but then- i know <laughs> you rob banks that's interesting <laughs> okay <laughs> um we kind of skipped over it, but we mentioned that Maggie was in her house whenever the sounds of like the bear going through the garbage. So Maggie has a house now. They're just not going to introduce this new house. You know, her old house burned down and she had uh, up until now been homeless, but I guess she just 
magically has a house in this episode. Yeah, I guess she just pulled out a mortgage. I mean, times were good in the 90s. It was much easier to buy. There wasn't a housing bubble crisis. Like, it's much more better to buy a house. But no, I kind of wish they would have gone through with that uh, on the purchase of the house. Uh, I think that could have been its own plot point. Yeah, or at least like, yeah, use that for some sort of... um story value, but uh, I'm glad that she has a house again. I I do like her new house. I think we've only seen it uh, when it's dark inside, I think, because the bear comes at night. She's like watching a movie, but um, yeah, it has a porch. It's reminiscent of her old house. I like it. Hey, actually, before we go further with Arthur, in that scene when he's catching the fish at the river and, and Maggie asks him about his family, you know, like if he's married, there's a really interesting expression. Well, he tells her that he's not married and then Maggie says, so who walks the dog? Uh, kind of coyly, but Arthur doesn't understand. And she says, oh, it's just an expression. But I tried to figure out, like, I don't know, what, what, what does that expression mean? I think through context clues, it's supposed to mean, like, do you have another person in your life that can do the mundane activities? So, like, walking the dog or watering the flowers, uh, cooking dinner. Yeah. So I think that was just her way of asking that, though. I've never heard of that expression either. That does make, I think that's, I think that's the right answer. Cause <laughs> what I was finding online was like, the only things that I found that was like close to relationship or like spousal um, terminology would be like, you could say, you could say I'm going to walk the dog or walking the dog is like a euphemism for having an affair. Uh, Cause apparently like you would walk, you would say, I'm going to go walk the dog. That's like a, a a lie oh. that you would tell whenever you would go yeah, to like the pub for, or like yeah. go have an affair or something. Yeah. So, so it's like going out for a pack of cigarettes. Exactly. Like of thing. Yeah. 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 So that's the only thing I could find. I don't really think that applies to this scene though, but I, I do really like your uh, interpretation of that expression. I think that might be what she's hinting at. <laughs> There's also a line in that scene where she's saying like, whenever he's fishing and she says like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that. Uh, I think that would have been the perfect moment for him to be like, that's because I'm a bear. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a similar line in in that where Chris is in K bear and he's monologuing and he says the line, what do you think our Neolithic brothers lied prostrate to? Bears. (laughs) Bears. (laughs) Like like that was the explanation for everything. Just (laughs) bears. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a very bare episode. You know, we we uh, we shouldn't overlook that. Uh, let's talk about Arthur's cave, that scene. Yeah, so he lives in a pretty homely cave. Uh, looks like he can see really just them. Like, I didn't see anything else. Like, it was, yeah. it, it just looked like a one-off cave. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty low light inside. There is a lot of, seems kind of lush. Like, there's a lot of greenery. It seems kind of damp. Uh, there's cave paintings on the walls. Yeah, like you said, they drink mead. Um, she eats some crowberries. They dance. Oh, there turns out to be a cave that actually does have bears on its uh, cave paintings, the Chauvet Cave. Oh, okay, yeah. So we've got, you know, not just like uh, mastodons and other, you know, bisons and things in cave paintings. There's also bear cave paintings. And uh, I think we might have skipped over it, but obviously Chris is talking a lot about bears, birth, death, rebirth. Uh, but I like his analogy that he uses for hibernation. It's a it's a form of uh, death, you know, that bears undergo. Mm. Kind of tying all those themes together. Yeah. Did you know that bears can see color really well? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Yeah, like, apparently, like the rods in their eyes are like they're like much better than a humans or something. Like, wow. 
I don't I don't know how true that is because it kind of sounds strange to me. But yeah, apparently bears really good at that. I guess they need it for hunting or something. Uh, yeah. So author is really seeing what he wants this time because this is the scene that really solidifies the relationship between Maggie and author. Because between then it was kind of like a flirtation, but now when they're dancing, that becomes a real thing. Yeah, it's it's a very beautiful moment. I uh, we have forgotten to mention, but the music in this episode, whenever Arthur's around, I believe the name of the song is "Pierre Gint" by Edvard Grieg. Uh, if you just looked up Pierre Gint by Edvard Grieg, you would hear it. And it's this very famous sort of like springtime melody played on a flute, you know? And I think that melody is present in a lot of those uh, those Arthur scenes. The music is just very reminiscent of that sort of feeling. And I think even in this scene, we do hear that melody happening when they're starting to dance. But the name of the song that kicks on when they're dancing is uh, Bailero. It's sung by Frederica von Stad, and it's sort of operatic in a way, like her style of singing. It's very beautiful. Maggie and Arthur are holding each other close, slow dancing. The lighting is like magical. It's like super dim, very soft, glamorous light, lots of shadow because they're in this like dark cave. Yeah, even the, even the dialogue is so poetic. Arthur tells her that he saw her even before they met. He saw her in the sky, and it was... Uh, Maggie flying her plane. It's going back to the eyesight, man. Tony, they can see really well. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that explains how he saw her. Um, God, it's just, I thought it was very, um, very charming and just so poetic. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a beautiful scene. But unfortunately, that's the last scene with them, isn't it? Because after that happens, Maggie goes back home and then she tries to revisit him. Yeah. And it's right when, like, Chris starts clearing up, too. Like, his allergies are starting to go away. Interesting. That signals that some change is happening through the atmosphere or through the the world. And she tries to go back to the cave, and they're all bears. They all reverted back to... <laughs> yeah, there's just a bear Four-legged, there, right? yeah, Ursine figures. <laughs> God, I just... I didn't understand, like, why... What happened? Like, why was... Why did he turn back to a bear then? Like, what changed? I guess that, hang on, wasn't there a line that said, like, I'm sorry, I can't be with you anymore? Like, Yeah, so there is in the deleted scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there so is. So I guess that that is sort of the explanation. You're right, that's the explanation. Let's talk about the deleted scene. Yeah, so in the deleted scene, he kind of comes through her back door? He, well, she, like, wakes up in bed, and he's just sitting yeah. there. He's, like, in her room. And he tells her he came in through, like, an alternative door, <laughs> kind of weird, but yeah. And then he explains to her like why he can no longer be seeing her. He says he's got to join his family or something like that. And uh, Maggie asks him, who are you? And they just kiss. So they finally get to a kiss in that scene, which was ultimately deleted. But uh, I really feel like this episode, I don't know. For me, I was so confused and maybe it makes the heartbreak stronger if we don't have that deleted scene, there's no explanation. But it uh, it seems so strange that uh, there's no reason almost. Without that deleted scene, there's like no reason for him to change back to a bear. Because he was a human this whole time. Like, why would he go back to being a bear? But yeah, I just thought that was a, a nice little magical, sort of magical realism, you know, uh, moment for, for Northern Exposure. I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, it's a super northern exposure moment right there. Like that wouldn't be found in many television shows and, and to be played straight. Yeah, it's, in that manner. It's kind of so removed from reality, but uh, taken at face value, like taken seriously and uh, given that sort of weight and power. And it's not just like a fantasy thing. It's almost as if it's real, but it can't be real. It's pretty cool. Okay, so on to the next plot point. It's Joel, and he's treating Shelly in the beginning. And it turns out that Shelly has contracted some sort of like dermatological disease. It's like something that's affecting her skin mm-hmm. right there. And he seems a little cuffed, like he's a little bit not engaging. Yeah, he, he definitely like at the end of that scene, I think he lets out a deep sigh. You know, he's kind of like almost appears like annoyed, you know, at Shelly. Yeah. And he tries to defend himself whenever Shelly questions him, saying, like, you seem like you're in such a terrible mood. And he says, no, uh, what I'm displaying is professional detachment. Are you mad, Dr. Fleischman? Mad? No. Why? I don't know. You seem kind of ticked off. Shelly, what you're observing in my behavior is my professional detachment. I'm trying to conduct a medical examination. You come to me, your physician, with a problem. I'm doing my best to diagnose it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, despite what he's saying, you can even hear it in his voice. He sounds really mad. (laughs) Yeah, it's later revealed that he's just bored. Like, it seems like he's going through incredibly non-urgent cases. Like, that's not like a life-altering thing that Shelley has. Like, it's not like it's cancer or some sort of horrifying disease. It's simply something that, like, she probably touched something she shouldn't have touched or rubbed it too many times, yada, yada. And now he's got to apply some cortisone and everything will be okay. Yeah, cortisone is his uh, prescribed treatment. He believes it's contact dermatitis, what he calls dishpan hands, exactly what you said. Like she's washing a lot at the brick. It's a pretty um, good estimation for what could be going on here. Well, before we leave Shelly real fast, setting up this scene, you know, Joel is very um, concerned about sort of the medical facts uh, that are at play in the scene. And Shelly is sort of making small talk. She mentions that she saw a new band, sort of like a Guns N' Roses sort of derivative style uh, group. The reason I bring it up is because apparently Shelly's not a big fan of Guns N' Roses so much anymore. At least after Slash uh, did a collaboration with Michael Jackson, she seems to be really uh, not a fan of, of that collaboration. Was Michael Jackson cool back then? I thought he was, but maybe not cool for like people who listen to rock and roll. Maybe that's the divide there because he's more pop music. I don't know. Okay. I thought he was actually genuinely cool to listen to back in the 90s. Well, I think it is cool that uh, this is another example of Northern Exposure sort of connecting to pop culture, like very contemporary music because uh, Slash was featured on Michael Jackson's album Dangerous, which came out in November of 1991. So it would have been very recent. Yeah, you just get a little bit of pop culture in your northern exposure. Mm, okay. So out of the corner, it looks like there is a new person shadowing Joel, and it's Leonard. Yeah, Leonard, who we spoke about in the opening soundbite. He's Marilyn's cousin. Did we mention the way you spell his last name? No. How do you spell that? So if you got the subtitles on, actually, I think with the subtitles, they may have spelt it wrong. But according to just like the internet and northern exposure fandom... His last name, which is Quinnahawk, um, is spelled Q-U-I-N-H-A-G-A-K, which sort of appears as Quinhagak, if you're just reading it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pretty interesting last name. 
Uh, so he's not on the whirlwind side of the family, I guess, but still Marilyn's cousin. Oh, I, I just real fast. I like Marilyn's sort of her little sort of plot line throughout the episode is, well, obviously she arranged for Leonard to shadow Joel and apparently Joel said it was okay. He doesn't remember okaying this, but uh, Marilyn says she asked him when he was playing Game Boy and he said yes. So <laughs> Joel was just not paying attention. <laughs> well, that shows another side that Joel is just really bored with his practice because yeah. he's just playing Game Boy in office hours. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow. What a terrible... Ah, Joel, come on, get it together. But also Marilyn throughout this episode, starting in this kind of early scene, I like that her desk is populated with a lot of different uh, seed packets. You get all the pictures of different flowers on the seed packets. And she's got one in her hand, like she's trying to choose one. Uh, and by the end of the episode, she's planting flowers. And, you know, like planting seeds and things is very in line with the season. And I just kind of like uh, thinking of Marilyn as not just a, a receptionist, but, you know, having her own house, which we actually see her house in this episode too at the end, and she's planting flowers. Yeah, that's really good setup for the end where we see her towing the fields, trying to plant her seeds down and, you know, going through the themes of rebirth. Yeah, it's a nice little kind of tie, tying the bow at the end. But um, to back it up a little bit with Joel, he's got Leonard shadowing him. And uh, one of the first scenes in which Leonard shadows Joel, uh, Joel, again, is being very sort of pragmatic, very down to business, and Leonard is making small talk with Shelly. Um, this is sort of a follow-up uh, appointment that Shelly has with Joel. So you can see sort of the two different approaches already uh, between Joel and Leonard, but Leonard's here to study Joel. So, you know, he can kind of sense that Joel is annoyed and, again, standoffish towards, towards Leonard, you know, himself. But I really like how genuine Leonard is. You know, he's not, even when Joel is almost angry with him, he comes back with sort of a genuine interest in Joel. He says, it's wonderful how quickly you can make a diagnosis. You know, as strange and off-putting as Joel may seem, uh, Leonard's going to try to learn as much as he can from him. Mm, yeah. He talks about how he needs to, you know, pretty much even stay at their houses. Like he needs to eat dinner. He needs to be with them often. He needs to know how they work and think and operate before he can diagnose them, before he could even begin the healing process, which is, I, I guess, one way to look at it. Like... Yeah, I, I guess you can find a problem within someone. You can be like, oh, I, th I think it's like this thing. But in today's time, you know, like Joel's method is like, it's obviously the right one. Yeah. Like well, he, he's, he's I, was, medical school. I would stand to argue uh, because it's okay. very clear that Leonard's method is probably not right. That would, you know, you can't spend that much time with every patient. There's no way that like, you'd have to have a lot of doctors to do that. So his side of the spectrum is, I think we could agree, probably wrong, uh, at least in that sense. There's a lot to learn from Leonard. Uh, Joel seems to be the most efficient, the best way of doing it. But I think by the end of this episode, uh, the show makes a case for there needs to be something in the middle because obviously Joel can diagnose something really quickly, but Joel even admits that one of his greatest achievements, at least as a student of medicine, was by sort of mixing his method of medicine that he uses today and also actually talking to the patient, something that he was very, used to be very afraid of, you know, that he tells us. Mm. But that's supposed to be part of the diagnosis though. Like for him to find out that that particular patient had, what was it? Like an amoebic infection. Mm -hmm. 
because he was swimming out in the in the ocean. I mean, you wouldn't have come to that conclusion if you hadn't talked with the patient, though. Like, there's no way. Which is what Joel is doing at the beginning of this episode. He's not talking to the patient like you know Shelley's trying to make small talk. I mean, sure oh, he is. Okay, I, sure I, I he is. But I, okay. I think you could like kind of make an argument that he's not really. What's the term for that? Whenever you sort of learn about it's like history or something. You learn learn about a patient's history. Yeah. I mean, Joel certainly does ask some really important questions to Shelley. He says, like, have you been putting anything on the rash? Um, have you changed your hand soap or your shampoo? But I think my bold statement uh, is just to say that Joel needs to do that more and not just uh, by the book, you know, be a little more personable to his patients. Something that he had to learn kind of the hard way. Like he almost became a pathologist, I think he mentions later, because he didn't want to talk to people. Actually, I, I started to seriously think about specializing in pathology. See, uh, that way I wouldn't have to deal with people, just pieces of them. That makes sense, I guess. <laughs> I will have to say, though, that a good doctor or like a patient kind doctor actually does make all the difference because I remember having to speak to doctor about um, getting surgery for my vocal cords. And I remember he took the time out of his day to actually sit down and talk to me about all of my stupid questions. Yeah. And he was really kind about it. And it really put me at ease because he actually genuinely cared, which... I mean, it's not like all doctors are cold-hearted. It's just that they have other things to do that are much more pertinent. Yeah. <laughs> and that doctor had to go home and go do his rounds. Like, he had to go do that later. He had to go write his notes much more. Like, all of my time that I was borrowing from him would have to come from somewhere else. It's a zero-sum game. Yeah. So, yeah, there definitely is value in a doctor that genuinely cares is in is willing to go the extra mile. And there's something in there, what you're describing, something that I don't really know how to quantify, but it's this sort of magic almost that doctors have in the way they talk to patients. And I think when Northern Exposure like focuses on this, it makes it so much more interesting than just a typical show about medicine or about doctors. Because I really do believe that doctors, they have a very smart way uh, of speaking to their patients. You know, it's not, it is small talk, it is comfort. And then it's also being able to, uh, it's almost like they're having a conversation on multiple levels because they can just talk to you as a friend. And at the same time, another part of their brain is working on, well, uh, what could this mean? Like, how could this be causing these symptoms to them? Mm, yeah, no, you're totally right. Like there is a reason, there, there's a strategy behind the folksiness, behind trying to get more out of you. Yeah. But I think it's a combination, hopefully, of strategy and uh, just genuine, being being very genuine. Okay. Well, continuing down this track, this storyline, Shelly's symptoms worsen. Like her, all of her skin is uh, just kind of covered uh, with this rash. It's kind of terrifying, actually. She's like really freaking out, as she should. And well, she goes back to Joel's office and uh, Joel's not there. Actually, where is Joel? Oh, he had to like make a house call or he had, to, he had to leave, right? He's like actually working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's still manning the station. Like I think he's like reading a book at a desk or something. Yeah, Len so Leonard's still there and um, Joel's not there, but they might as well just hang out. So I think Leonard offers her some banana bread. Shelly sits down. It appears that her rash has... Uh, seemed to subside. I think she still has it on her hands, but it's not as terrifying as it was before. And it's in this scene that I think like sort of this huge pivotal moment 
is, uh, you know, shakes the rest of the episode, at least the storyline. Shelley tells Leonard about uh, an egg story. Well, it turns out Holling has been serving a lot of eggs because I guess it's just that season. Yeah, if we wanted to... Yeah, hang on, I'm sorry. If we wanted to really overanalyze that, it just occurred to me that like there's an overabundance of eggs. It's springtime. There's an overabundance of like birth and life. Yeah, definitely. Egg eggs are super symbolic in in sort of rebirth. You know, obviously in Easter that holiday and Passover, the egg is there. Uh, I'm sure that's just sort of a Jungian symbol for just like rebirth and and something that yeah, like fertility and all that. Yeah, exactly. And, um, well, okay, I'd like to play the, the egg story that Shelly says. I had an egg once. Mm-hmm. Not to eat, to, you know, grow. Mm-hmm. My Aunt Marge gave it to me. She said if I kept it warm, it would hatch. My dad said Marge was a wacko. It was just a plain old supermarket egg. But I believed her. Mm-hmm. At night, I kept it nice and cozy under a lamp. And during the daytime, I carried it around in a sock under my sweater. <laughs> what happened? Nothing. Zippo. After six months, my dad said he didn't want a rotten egg in the house because it might break and stink up the place. But I couldn't just dump it in the trash. I had to see what was inside, you know? So I cracked it open. Inside, there was this little bitty chick. He'd been dead a long time. I mean, a long, long time. I was real bummed. But... At least my Aunt Marge wasn't crazy. That's a very interesting story. That is a very morbid story. It's so scary and so sad, right? Yeah, like, was the was the chick destined to die? Or, like, was there a chance to save it at a certain situation? Just all sorts of questions that are about that. Yeah, it's, it, as Leonard says, it's a very interesting story, and... I think the the episode, I love that there's no music. It's kind of stark. It's very quiet as she's telling you this story. The camera slowly pushes into Shelly as she's speaking, and it gets very dramatic or, or just very impactful when it gets really close. Um, yeah, I think it's it's such a beautiful story. Just, I mean, as I said before, I mean, it's about like sadness, terror, and death. You know, it contains elements of childlike wonder, there's innocence and the loss of innocence, you know, like this poor baby chick that you're talking about, like, would it have lived? It, did it have a chance? But I think what I love most about this story that Shelley tells, and I don't think it's really directly hinted at, but I think it's a powerful example of faith. Um, obviously, Shelley's belief in the egg didn't, it, it wasn't enough to make a chick, but um, the whole time her dad was like, your aunt's crazy. There's no way that uh, it's not, it's not a fertile egg, you know, but, uh, no, her, her aunt wasn't wrong. It actually was a fertile egg in the end. Um, unfortunately it didn't make it, but you know, she says at least my aunt wasn't wrong. Yeah. Like the potential for life was there. Um, it wasn't like an absolute zero situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that like the story or like the theme of it is that there is, something found within the cracks of anything. So even through like the darkest depths, like there is still something there, I I guess, even even though it had an incredibly sad ending. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's like, you know, an argument for even though there's a sad ending, like your belief wasn't misplaced. There was something there. And maybe it's not within your power, 
and maybe just believing in something isn't enough, but uh, you shouldn't not believe. That's when Leonard gives her the diagnosis that she's shedding her skin, which is, again, another example of coming alive again, rebirth. Mm-hmm. Because she's taking it away from her old skin and just shedding it away like reptiles do, which is kind of actually kind of a strange analogy, I guess. Yeah. I'm trying to say that... Uh, trying to say that Shelly's a lizard person. <laughs> yeah. But he gives her the diagnosis that she's suffering from s- that. Yeah. She's just trying to come into her new skin. Right. I find it really interesting that he's eating banana bread. Did you know that when you make banana bread, you can actually use like way, way past their prime bananas? Like yeah, brown, yeah, yeah. Brown is like bananas. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Basically, all the bananas that, that start browning, we just like freeze and then turn it into banana bread later. Yeah. So basically, he's eating something that can be recycled. Yeah. It's like a rebirth. It's its own like, yeah. you know, that's pretty... Ah, dang, man. Those metaphors going deep. <laughs> or we're just overanalyzing. <laughs> Which is... I don't know. It's, it, it deserves the analysis. Yeah. <laughs> so the next time we see Shelly, her skin is radiant. Actually, uh, Joel is in the brick and they're having a conversation. Uh, Shelly's very happy. She's cracking eggs into the frying pan, kind of talking to him, talking at him from the kitchen. And she says, you know, don't, don't feel bad that you didn't guess right, you know, with your, with your diagnosis. Leonard was only able to diagnose me because I told him the egg story. And uh, he's like, wait, what? And so she's trying to console him. She feels really happy and she doesn't want him to feel sad. But Joel in this scene is is very struck with something. Like you can see he's like really thinking about something and kind of stuck in his thoughts. And I think this is a great example of uh, one of those scenes where um, instead of ending when the dialogue's over, uh, we get sort of a shot of Joel and, and he's very racked with with thoughts. And then we get a shot of Shelly who just cracked an egg and she looks up over at Joel. She's exuberant and happy. And that's where the scene ends. So it's kind of like a quiet glance, you know. But I thought that was pretty cool. It's a You can tell that there's something happening in this scene, obviously by Rob Morrow's performance. And the editing kind of gives you an extension of that dialogue. Just a moment to think about it. Yeah, that scene is really poignant because there's a lot of strength in silence. And like you were saying, when you just let the camera just kind of rest on the actor and just let him carry on, it's as if to show that like... This is important. There's life beyond the camera. Yeah, like it's still going to continue forward even if we're not showing it explicitly on those scenes. And it's a good way to parlay moroseness into a character in its scenes. I, I always love it when they do that. They sort of uh, have those, like either they hold the shot too long or they continue with editing even though nothing's happening. And it's like looking at each character and seeing what they're doing. Oh, we forgot. Uh, The scene right before this is when Joel confronts Leonard because Joel figures out uh, that Leonard told Shelly she was uh, shedding her skin. So Joel is obviously very disturbed that Leonard would see one of his patients. I think that's sort of ethically... Uh, improper as a doctor, obviously because Leonard doesn't hold like the same sort of medical license that Joel does. But also Joel is kind of pointing out that Leonard is like wrong. I, I like Joel's outburst. Okay, look, first of all, you had no right to intervene medically with one of my patients. And second of all, how could you? How could you in good conscience tell a person they're, they're sloughing their skin like a, a boa constrictor? I could be wrong. You could be? You could be wrong? Leonard is trying to make the point that 
you know, you're never a hundred percent certain in medicine. There's always that, uh, margin of doubt, I think is what, uh, Joel says, but, um, Leonard's approach is, you know, just try to figure out something that helps the patient, you know, do no harm. That's sometimes the best thing that we can do. And, um, you know, Joel starts getting really angry with Leonard, uh, but Leonard sort of points out this distinction. He says, Joel, you're telling me that you feel bored by your practice. And he sort of relates that to this quote from Stanislavski. Ever read Stanislavski? Cardiologist? Acting teacher. He said, there are no small parts, only small actors. Leonard, would you tell me what this has to do with anything? Well, you're bored because you're boring. I'm what? Boring. I'm boring? I can't believe you just said that. Do you have any idea how, how insulting that is, what you just said? I, I own my office, I extend to you this courtesy and you insult me? No, you're angry. Yeah, yeah, I'm angry. Well, good. See, that's not boring. Yeah, that quote is from the famous Stanislavski, the Russian theater. I guess he wasn't just an actor. Like, he, he was an actor, but it's almost like he's a little bit bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was almost like a teacher of parts. Right. But... Yeah, his thing was called a bit part. And the actual definition of a bit part is a role with direct interactions with the principal actors, but they don't have any more than five lines of dialogue. Mm. So it's between an extra and a supporting actor. It's like that space in between. Yeah. And I actually didn't know that. I didn't know there was an actual I didn't, specified yeah. term for that. I didn't realize that it was like a bit part had an actual metric to it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think that he has a point right there whenever you said that there's no such thing as like a small part. Like everyone has its own function within the grand scheme of the things, like the giant cogwheel that moves us all. Like everyone has a, a purpose in it. So I guess that what he is trying to say, what Leonard is trying to say is that like you may view these patients as like herd animals, Like they have a purpose and like maybe you should be like evaluating the way that you look at it. And then from there on, you can diagnose them better. So it's a really good lesson. Yeah. It almost seems like it may be a fallacy, but what he's, you know, another thing that he's saying is, you know, there's no such thing as a small part. If you think you're, if you think you have been given a small part, then that just means you're a small actor. So if you think your practice is boring, that just means that you are boring. So it's kind of a weird reflexive, maybe a fallacy, but uh, regardless, I think he's right. I think, uh, Joel is a bit boring or he is, um, he's viewing his life as boring when it's not his patient's fault. You know, it's something within himself that he ought to change. Right. I also thought it was kind of meta how at the end of that scene, he, uh, Joel gets incredibly angry and then he says like, Oh, you call me boring. And he says like, ah, you're angry. That's good. That's better than being boring. Yeah. It's like a, kind of like a meta thing on like how you should read a line. Like you didn't read it flat. So he was just like, oh, at least that's an interesting direction that you're taking yeah. this line. This way. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. It's like you're, you're re- yeah, I like your acting in the scene. If you're, if you're thinking of it in a Stanislavski way, it's like, I like your approach. That's cool. Um, so we get to the last scene with Joel and Leonard, and we were kind of talking about this. Joel wants to tell Leonard about um, this time when he was a student making his rounds. And we mentioned before, he was able to diagnose this patient because, you know, no one could diagnose this patient. And one day, Joel was just talking to him, just as a person. There was this one patient, and he'd been in the hospital, I guess, about two weeks. Abdominal pain, weight loss, low-grade fever. Nobody could diagnose him. And I'm talking to the guy one day, you know, not as a doctor, just shooting the breeze. Turns out he was a fisherman. 
And he'd been down to the Sea of Cortez about a month before. And I said, whoa, the Sea of Cortez, Mexico. Amoeba confection. Exactly, yeah, how'd you know? Well, we have something similar up here from Walrus. Huh. In a way, I think like doctors are kind of like modern day detectives. And oh, yeah. Like, you're presented with a lot of clues and you have to work backwards to come to the conclusion. But you have to make sure it's like the right conclusion. Like there's only one mm, correct yeah. one right there. We had someone on the pod that was a guest on the season two finale, Addy. He is now a doctor. He actually graduated from med school now. But I remember him always telling me stories about his test in med schools and how they were pretty similar to what uh, Joel's describing, where there would be like a list of places that this person had been to. Like it would be like some sort of like factory worker and these were the conditions of the factory. This was his genetic bloodline. And this is like where he went to for lunch. And from the clues, you were supposed to piece which one were valuable pieces of information, which one were just bogus. Like you didn't need it in terms of diagnosing the patient. And then from there, you- A red herring. Yeah, red herring. Exactly. And then you would find like exactly what you needed and be like, oh, he's got X disease. Got it right there. And then you would like write it down. And like, that was just one question. You had to do it like 70 times or something. Like you would just come up with like other scenarios. And uh, I think that's such a- interesting way to groom doctors it's pretty yeah it's a pretty cool it's a good description doctors as detectives and you know uh, obviously that tv show house you know supposed to be like holmes sherlock holmes so they've kind of found that analogy uh and made a very successful tv series you know sort of about the correlation between what it is to be a doctor and try to diagnose a patient and like solving crimes and murders and stuff like sherlock holmes would there are so many television shows that are based on doctors. Like it's such a popular profession to make a TV show. Yeah, I think it's because doctors, you know, in real life, they have, they see a lot in in the spectrum of like what your everyday life would be like. And yeah, it just seems like you could make anything interesting almost with a doctor. But I like, um, there are a lot of shows about doctors, but there are a few of them that approach it differently. It's not all the same, but... I guess then again, there's a lot of procedural shows as well, but... Right. Well, it seems like it's one of the few professions that literally deal with life and death. Yeah. Like, you can't... Like, you that can and cops. make a television show. <laughs> yeah, that and cops. You can make a television show about a trash can collector, and I'm not saying what they do isn't important. Of course it is, but it would be a hard stretch to be like, if I don't make this delivery, someone dies. Like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it'd probably be harder to pitch it as well, but... Yeah. <laughs> So apart from this anecdote, what's happening in this scene is Joel, you know, goes to speak with Leonard. This is at Marilyn's house. So we actually get a nice wide shot of the exterior of Marilyn's house, which, you know, actually, I think we may have seen her backyard before because she has a, an emu farm. Um, maybe that's not on her property, but. I didn't know that was on her property. Yeah. I was yeah. Gonna say, probably like, somewhere else. I don't, I don't think she has enough land to support <laughs> that. Like, I don't know. It is Alaska, but you're probably right. Um, I don't think we've seen her house before. So this is kind of a first. And yeah, Joel's basically just going there to, it's in a way like apologize and in a way to acknowledge Leonard, you know, sort of what we talked about earlier in the episode, uh, good medicine, whether it be healer or MD, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. You kind of have to take what you learn. You know, I think Leonard was able to learn, hopefully learn something from Joel but I think Joel learned a lot uh, from Leonard. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So the whole premise behind this is that Leonard is shadowing Joel in the hopes of learning something from conventional medicine. 
but obviously the opposite happened. But do yeah. you think Leonard actually learned something from this? Like, could he could he come back to his original place and be like, hey, I just shadowed this um, MD doctor. Here's what I picked up from it. Here are like the things that I learned. Or do you think he's going to come back and be like, I just schooled this uh, <laughs> this fancy <laughs> Columbia doctor. I don't need to go to med school. <laughs> Probably the latter, yeah. But I think if we had to find something, there's obviously not a lot that happens on screen where Leonard seems to be learning. But I think what he might take away from this is uh, something that maybe he was already upset about and concerned with his own practice is, is that it takes maybe takes too long to diagnose a patient because uh, there is that brief moment in that scene when he talks about um, spending lots of days, almost weeks sometimes, trying to get to know a patient in order to diagnose them. And he's just um, very excited that Joel is able to diagnose something so quickly. And at the end of the scene, we get another one of those gorgeous sort of like stagnant wide shots. Um, actually, what I remember most about this episode is this shot. Um, I just remember it hitting me because the the story that Joel tells right before this is sort of a powerful moment. Um, he says something like, you know, I, I don't think I've thought about that in a long time. Well, a week later, he's out of the hospital. And, and when he left, he, he shook my hand and he said, Dr. Fleischman, you saved my life. And uh, that was it for pathology. I haven't thought about that in a long time. But uh, it obviously had a, a very profound meaning for him, uh, at least a long time ago when he was a student. And he walks away from Leonard's car, who Leonard's getting ready to leave. He drives off, but the camera doesn't cut. It's just this very wide shot. Marilyn is sort of in the foreground. Joel walks over to her where, where she's been planting some flowers. And uh, he doesn't say anything, but he bends over to look at uh, the flowers that she's planting. And again, you know, we get that just holding in that moment, holding in the wide shot, no dialogue, no sort of necessarily meaningful action, but just uh, existence, you know? Right. In film, what do wide shots actually represent? Well, I will say typically whenever you're shooting a scene, you want to always get sort of the wide shot because you can see all of the action there. And if you're ever um, cutting between people and you don't know what to cut to next, you can always go back to the wide shot. It's not confusing as long as you establish it correctly. Uh, you know where you are. So if you get lost in the editing, you can always jump back to that wide shot. But um, as far as sort of the value and the meaning of a wide shot, I guess you could say wide shots sometimes are used to make characters feel smaller if it's an extreme wide shot. Um, it's also a very good way of uh, sort of getting out of the close-up and, and figuratively and literally allowing yourself to take a breath. You know, you're not up close anymore. You're kind of brought back as the objective viewer and uh, you can kind of like take it in, you know, take in all of the surroundings. I don't know exactly how to quantify it, but it definitely has a different feel than being up close to someone, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I can't explain the science behind it, but in my opinion, I think that wide shots make for very good comedy scenes. Oh yeah, yeah. Like comedy plays out why. in the wide shot. I think is a is the um, is the saying. I think because comedy is uh, in a lot of cultures, at least I think across the world, physical humor is is a lot uh, more communicative than just verbal humor. I guess obviously, if you don't speak the language, you won't get the joke, but. 
uh, there's so much comedy in your physicality, you know, especially in like yeah, silent uh, movies and like Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, I guess it just allows you to see more. So like it doesn't just come out of nowhere, I, I guess is the best way that I, I can explain why wide shots work in comedy. And whenever I'm thinking of like a very funny scenario in my head, it's always like in the form of a wide shot. It's always like it, you would just see the person or an individual and like the camera will be far back and then like the lion pounces and it gets them from like off screen. And like, that's way more funnier than if it was like right up close up and then the lion pounces on him. Yeah. You get to see like sort of that whole, that whole motion. So we've got one last little, I think scene that we may have skipped over. It's sort of a storyline. Uh, Maurice, we said that he kind of follows a similar trajectory as Chris here, but um, there is a scene when Maurice and Ed are cleaning out Maurice's attic the set really reminded me of Jumanji, you know, in the attic in Jumanji. Oh. <laughs> it just looks like, you know, there's so many old, cool trinkets and stuff. And uh, Maurice is just like, oh, you can toss this. Don't worry about it. And it's pretty funny because they go through a bunch of stuff and Ed finds this trunk with a bunch of um, sort of relics from his uh, Maurice's grandfather or something like that. And it's uh, like a smoking pipe, a kilt, some bagpipes. And, uh, you know, Maurice is obviously very moved by seeing these things. And Ed is um, asking, okay, uh, you want me to toss him? <laughs> and then just like, that's the button because Maurice just like looks at him and is like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, with the expression and the scene ends. Yeah, like, I, I guess the scene is meant to represent that, like, you need to dig through the past. So he's looking through his old relics, all his old trinkets, and he's trying to find stuff that he had forgot so that he can rebuild anew. That's demonstrated in the last scene because we get a montage of all the characters of what they're kind of going through Yeah. at the end of the day. So Marilyn is growing her flowers and Maggie is reminiscing about her experience with Arthur and Ed's playing baseball, which... I thought it was kind of strange, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, hang on, maybe this makes sense. So baseball is simply a game in which you just hit the ball and you're trying to pass through the bases, try to get a home run, bada bing, bada boom. That's <laughs> the game right there. But it's the simplicity in the game in that like you continuously play it. There's 162 games in a season. And once that's over, you kind of rest again through the summer after like past the dog days and when it ends and then you start again on the season once more on baseball and i know you can say that that's applicable for every single sports game like mm -hmm. soccer or football, football or whatever like yeah of course it starts anew but in baseball there seems to be a lot more waiting and then action and then waiting and then action as if every single new play was something new that's coming up to the bat right there so i thought if you had to categorize a sports game to symbolize rebirth maybe baseball is the best one because it's such there's such a defined play between each one so it's kind of indicative of like different segments there's life yeah, yeah different segments between each one that's the best over analysis i can get from that because otherwise i don't know why he's playing baseball <laughs> no yeah I, I i didn't think about it as deeply but i think that's a really good i think it's a good argument for for baseball being that sort of metaphor yeah, you got to pick something to photograph. And I think uh, if you wanted to put some meaning to it, that's a good example. Oh, I got, hang on. I got another one. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah. like, you, you know, in when you were like a teenager and everyone in high school would be like, hey, didn't you go on a date with Mary? And you're like, yeah. Like, what base did you get to? And they're like, second base. Maybe baseball is like an allegory to be used for sex and sex is therefore used as an allegory for life. 
Sure. Ed has that, been sexualized a, before in the show, you know, with like light feather. I, that's a, I'm reaching really that's, yeah. far into the drawer. This, we've gone that. to the over analysis now. <laughs> but, <laughs> I do really love that, um, that ending montage. You know, we talked about sort of closing montages before in the episode Three Amigos. And um, in the end, they're, they're kind of the same thing. But for some reason, this, uh, this just works, you know. I, I guess it's not exactly the same. This, this ending montage has completely new footage that we haven't seen, whereas in Three Amigos, they're just kind of playing the greatest hits of the episode. And in this one, as you mentioned before, you get some new content with each of these characters. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of Ed's documentary that he made. Um, but also, gosh, the images are just so beautiful. You mentioned Maggie is uh, sort of sitting in the river reflecting. That's such an amazing picture. It's almost like a painting. It's very wide and Maggie is sitting on this fallen tree and it's sort of, the camera sort of slowly pans off and then it fades away into Shelly who's having her hair washed by hauling. And, you know, there's all these like sort of fades. You, you mentioned Marilyn is planting her seeds. Ruthann is uh, talking to her barber and smiling. Ed plays baseball. I think one of the most important little images is um, Joel is uh, sitting with an old patient. She's um, talking, you know, you can't, you can't hear anything because it's sort of like music is over this, but um, you can see Joel is maybe taking notes on a clipboard and his elderly patient is kind of going on and on almost. Uh, but Joel is smiling like big and radiant. Like he's not annoyed by listening to this, this lady talk. And the final one is uh, Maurice on the rooftop playing his grandfather's bagpipes. And, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I kind of liked your interpretation of that sort of discovery, Maurice finding something old and kind of going back to the past and, and uh, making it new. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really interesting that he chooses bagpipes because I didn't know this, but apparently bagpipes are a symbol of freedom. Interesting. So after Scotland was defeated by Britain in 1745, the Scots were greatly uh, oppressed by the British. And the British actually banned bagpipes during that time, I think for like 50 years, because the bagpipes would be used to rouse the Scottish people into, into war. It was like an instrument for that. Uh, yeah. So it would send them into a frenzy. So the British had to simply ban bagpipes. <laughs> but maybe the symbol of freedom is kind of applicable in this one. So yeah. he's kind of learning to start anew, starting to get out of a shell, seeking toward there. And what greater expression is that than freedom? Yeah. Gosh, it really is uh, just phenomenal. Um, each of those shots has its own sort of like lyrical quality. Some feel like paintings. The the shot with Ed swinging the base, uh, the swinging the baseball bat, sort of like a sort of a lowish angle, very wide, and it's sort of swooping around him. It's very beautiful, <laughs> very beautiful stuff. Okay, so I think now is a great time to introduce our guest analyst for the episode. We mentioned at the top of the episode that. Uh, we like to bring on someone who hasn't seen the show before and sort of get their outsider opinion. Does this show stand up in today's atmosphere? Uh, what did you think about it just as the episode alone, you know, you, with no context? Like, does this show excite you? Do you want to see more? Uh, what's confusing? So our guest this episode is my friend Nico. Uh, I actually met him this fall whenever I was working in France. Nico and I worked together uh, on sound on a film. And so we spent a lot of time uh, sort of collaborating. And I think he had noticed I was, you know, editing the podcast while I was over there, 
we maybe talked about it once in a while. Um, but I'm very glad and very excited to have him as a guest on the podcast. Apart from being uh, a filmmaker, he's an incredibly talented musician, a singer, guitar player, pianist. And uh, yeah, I'm just kind of really excited to see how this show affected him. Hello, everyone. Nicolas speaking from France. And I give you my first impression about Northern Exposure, episode 19, Wake Up Call, Springtime. And I haven't seen this TV show, so this is the first my first time. And I really liked it. It reminds me a lot of, you know, Twin Peaks. It really has this Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks vibe. You know, you have people living in a village or a really remote place surrounded by nature. And the thing I really liked about this episode is that you have this really interesting duality going on uh, when you have the inside versus the outside reason, uh, ra uh, rational stuff and rational. And, you know, like in Twin Peaks, you know, the inside, the village, is the place of reason, of rational stuff. This is the place when you have the physician, for example. And the outside is the place where all the mysterious and strange stuff are happening. In Twin Peaks, this is like the, the murder. Uh, and here, this is the transformation of the, the bear guy. And, you know, like when, when the woman, you know, she falls in love with this like guy that looks like Legolas from the Lord of the Ring when they cross the river to go to his cave. Uh, they cross this frontier uh, between like the bubble, the human bubble, the inside and the outside, which is nature. Uh, this outside where, you know, like transformation is possible. And you have this whole, this tension going on as well with the re relationship between like the physician and the shaman. And, you know, you have the guy from the inside, the rational, the rational guy, and you have the other guy from the outside, from nature, from another community with another knowledge. And I, yeah, I really liked it. And in general, uh, more broadly, I really like when in a piece of art or in a novel or in music, when you have this resonance going on, you know, when uh, all the elements, uh, there's an e echo, you know, and here you really have this great echo, echo with images and all this symbolic uh, charge. For example, uh, you know, eggs, you know, you see eggs throughout the whole episode. Uh, they speak about bears all the time. They speak about like all spring and you have all these like echoes going on. And this is really nice. This is really well done. I really, I really liked it. And speaking of resonance, you have another fact that I really liked uh, in the opening. You have, I think this is a moose. I'm not sure. Roaming in the street. And during the whole episode, they speak about bears, uh, you know, trying to pick some food out of the trash. And all the characters are a little bit scared, not about the moose, but about bears. And you still have this feeling about the outside sneaking in, into the inside, like the kind of like uh, the mysterious outsiders, the mysterious nature uh, during the night that comes roaming into the street. And this is, and you have this duality for the mind as well. Uh, this is all the shadows and the irrational, irrational stuff. Uh, that the shaman is dealing with. And so, yeah, I really like this episode because you have this whole symbolic stuff going on. And this is not easy. This is easy to do bad symbolic stuff, but this is really well done. So I think I'm going to give it a try and to try to watch it. 
Okay, so that was Nico with his analysis on the episode. I have to say, I really love what he has to say on it. He picked up on a lot of details that me and you didn't think to pick up on. And yeah, I'm assuming that this is his second language, right? English? Uh, yeah, it was good. I'm, it's not his first language. Yeah, it's actually, his English is actually better than most people's that I know. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk most about what he said about the inside versus outside, about like yeah. nature coming into the town of Sicily. And I love it because I didn't pick up on that at all. And that could also be a reason for why Arthur turns back into a bear. So it's cycling back from there. So presumably we came from nature. So we went into civilization and now we're going back to nature like a cycle and then just keeps going back and forth and back and forth like that. Yeah. And I like that theme that he has to do with that. And he even used the moose in the beginning in the title shot into his analysis. Now I have to say like that moose is on every single episode. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't pertain to just this episode, but the ability for him to work that into the episode is really impressive because it's true. The moose is sneaking into the village and they're okay with nature creeping in uh, inside their homes. Yeah, it's sort of Sicily represents, you know, what we recognize as civilization, as like a city. But uh, this is that one type of city that's so far removed from, you know, normal America that strange things and outside, you know, the nature on the outside can come in because it's just so far out there, you know? And, um, I I think actually what's really funny is one of our past guests, Danny also placed a lot of importance on the moose, you know, even though the moose is, it's in the theme song, every episode, it's actually not in the show proper, except for, I think maybe one episode, but, um, still people seem to really love the moose in the theme song. And I liked that Danny also, his analysis featured sort of this understanding of moose as nature and it's sort of nature versus humanity whenever it enters this sort of town. But um, just to get back to what Nico was saying, yeah, it's sort of like this, this everyday normal small town that also invites in this sort of outside force, I guess, even if you could say it's nature or if it's some other sort of magic. I also like that he describes kind of what you're saying, Charles, the disconnect between, you know, the inside versus the outside. And the moment whenever Maggie crosses the river is sort of like breaking that, uh, crossing that bubble of the interior and, you know, the outside of nature. It's sort of once you get past that river, things like magic and transformation, uh, this werebear, you know, is possible. (laughs) Yeah. I like that he calls Arthur a Legolas lookalike. Yeah, this Legolas character. I in my notes I put him down as Forest Man because he just comes out of the forest, you know, until he properly introduces himself as Arthur. <laughs> Have you ever read A Midsummer Night's Dream from Shakespeare? Yes, yeah, I think we read it in high school. For some reason, that's like a very. I think it's because it's like a comedy, and it's maybe it's easy to stage too because I remember seeing it in a lot of movies. Right, it's in a. Dead Poet Society and other films. Yeah, it's definitely shown a lot. And um, it's probably one of his most widely cited ones besides, you know, Romeo and Juliet. But the, uh, it just occurred to me that there's a lot of animal transformations in that as well. And I was wondering if that had any play into this episode. You know, that's a good question. I'm sure there's got to be some sort of universal imagery going on here. Yeah, I think the play deals a lot with people losing their sense of self 
because um, of the transformations into animals. Therefore, that plays into there. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. There's a lot of sort of relationships going on back and forth. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I read it, but all right. So some cliff notes here. Uh, it says Shakespeare uses animal imagery to suggest that love between characters is irrational, illogical, and blind, which makes sense, I guess, with uh, Maggie and Arthur. Mm. She's kind of blind to him actually being a bear because she's in love. Yeah. Uh, Happened to fit right in. I like that he remarks that this TV show would have been really easy to do bad. And I agree with them. I think if you didn't juggle the correct number of balls then it would easily just go kaput but northern exposure does a really good job of keeping the right number of balls in the air yeah and you know it's easy to uh to play with symbols but um if you kind of know what you're doing and you give it some weight and some importance and some value characters that really go through some change and really struggle with different ideas that's that's really interesting to follow along with nico mentions sort of the symbolic echoes throughout the episode. The images of eggs, bears, and spring, you know, that's, again, kind of what you're saying, juggling all these balls. And, uh, you know, they may go up once in a while, but they come back down. It's like a repetitive motif, you know, these echoes. Um, It's just really great writing. You see these same elements return, go away, and come back again. And, uh, you sort of start seeing how it all fits together. You know, it's not just one ball going up and down, but it's a circle of balls going in a circle, you know? Right. Just to complete that metaphor. <laughs> it's a good one though. The one other thing that I have written down uh, from from Nico's analysis is, uh, again, the inside versus outside. You can apply this to Shelley. You know, she's on the outside, her skin is changing a lot of things. And on the inside, she's... Uh, it's sort of a disconnect between what she feels on the inside and being able to bring that uh, to the outside to shed her skin. Oh, nice. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Nico also brings up sort of like the inside and the outside, not just nature, but sort of reason versus maybe feeling, I guess, kind of comparing Joel and Leonard. And that just made me think it's pretty interesting to see that uh, Joel maybe feels maybe could be represented as as an opponent or sort of against uh, Leonard's way of thinking, like feeling uh, instead of reasoning. But uh, I just wanted to point out that Leonard seems to be very accepting of Joel. You know, he's the one who approaches Joel and says, uh, I've got to change the way I do things. You know, I'm kind of uh, reevaluating a lot in his life, you know. And yeah, mm. it's interesting to see that even though Leonard was the one to approach Joel, in the end, it seems that Joel is the one who took away the the biggest lesson. Yeah, isn't it like um like a trope in literature, the civilized savage? Yeah, I guess so. I guess I think also in this in this series, a lot of times, uh, you know, Ed being sort of like a simpleton, but he sort of has some sort of simpleton's knowledge or, or wisdom, I should say, and oftentimes like Uncle Anku and Leonard are they're represented as being you know wise past just like a surface level, always having the right answer or something, some sort of um, mystery of an answer, but they're always right somehow. All right. Well, that was Nico's commentary. Once again, thank you so much, Nico, for recording this for us. I hope you're doing well in France. Charles, hope you're doing okay in your quarantine. And uh, next week we've got another great episode. It's called 
The Final Frontier, episode 20 in season three. Hmm. I'm going to guess. I'm going to go really wild. I'm going to swing super far <laughs> with this. I think it's about space and it's about Maurice. That's a good guess. Yeah, space is the final frontier. I think oftentimes Maurice uh, references Alaska as the final frontier, right? Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a Maurice-centric episode. He's going to play some part in it. Uh, either way, Charles, next week will be, uh, I guess, video conferencing again. Yeah, video conferencing due to the coronavirus. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, um, yeah. Okay, well, I'll call you next week. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Nico for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.